Well, welcome to Grace Community Church as you welcome us into your homes. And we are glad to be here on this uh, Sunday morning. It's actually Palm Sunday. And uh, so ordinarily we'd be celebrating that day uh, together in the church here. Uh, but this is the best we can do at this time. Uh, speaking at home, uh, I'm sure that that's what you're very, very familiar with lately. It uh, seems like about everything that we do is at home, and it'll probably be that way for, it looks like, at least another couple of weeks or so, from what I understand. I uh, just want to remind you, I hope you're uh, reading your Bibles every day, uh, reading um, anything like commentaries or anything that would help you in your relationship with the Lord, and having a very vital prayer life. And we fellowship, uh, maybe like on the social medias, on phone, and whatever way that we can do. Uh, that is very helpful. We do need that kind of encouragement, uh, probably more than ever. Um, I do want to suggest to you, there are a few places on the web that you can get some uh, sources that are very, very helpful in your growth with the Lord. Uh, there's Ligonair.org that uh, you might be familiar with, R.C. Sproul. That one is a very good website to go to. They have now opened up everything in their library there. As far as audios and videos, there are conferences galore for many years that they have there. Uh, that's one idea. Another one of my favorites is, of course, gty.org, or that's John MacArthur. And, of course, everything that he's done for 50 years is all there as far as audio and a lot of video. Uh, a lot of resources uh, between those two right there. There's another one that would, uh, if you're familiar with, uh, Alistair Big. Alistair, uh, of course, is one of our favorites. His uh, website is truthforlife.org. And on there you can see his sermons on uh, video and also audio. A lot of sources uh, available there. Another one of my favorite websites is uh, monergism.com. And it's just packed with... Uh, commentaries that go from the Puritan years all the way up to present time. There are audios, videos on there, also uh, e-books uh, that even have a lot of the Puritan books. So anyway, that gives you a lot of things to go to, especially if you're at home a lot and uh, you're wondering what to do next. Well, that will uh, should be able to help you a lot. And if you uh, want to catch those again, uh, the websites that I gave you and other ones, feel free to give me a call anytime and uh, ask me what some of the things that I like and that you could go to. Anyway, we uh, will get to our text today and I'll start off with a question and the question is really the title, who was responsible for the death of Christ? Who was responsible for the death of Christ? Who was responsible for really killing the Son of God? It's one of the most significant events ever in the history of this planet. And of course, when you think about that, it's quite a conundrum because there are a lot of people that are involved in the death of Christ, in that crucifixion. A lot of key role players that are involved in that. Now, in Luke, we have been studying all the way up now to Luke 22, and now we're getting to the very heart, the very center, the core of what Christianity is about. It's leading up to the death of Christ, and of course then the burial, uh, or the resurrection. And of course we look at that as being um, 
the very core of what we believe in. And, of course, Christ dying for our sins. That is the Gospel, of course. Uh, anyway, this being the heart and soul of it, it means that's where forgiveness is at. That's where justice is at. That is where the wrath of God is at. That's where grace and mercy and love and the glory of God is most seen, the most magnified, most displayed. Luke has brought us up now to the very last few hours, actually a couple of days before Christ will be crucified. And as he does that, he has been presenting the very the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, his miracles, his teaching. He's been presenting him all the way through that and about the arguments that he is the Messiah. He is God. And we know that the death of Christ is the very reason for the incarnation, the very life of Christ. He came here to die. Everything in the Old Testament points to that. Uh, if you were to look back at the tabernacle, it was a type of Christ in all that was offered there at the temple. And uh, the daily sacrifices, and of course the uh, Passover, and the, all of the feast festivals, they all were pointing to Christ and His climax, His death. And uh, so we are now in the Passion Week. We're getting near the end of the Passion Week here. And uh, so what we see, what we have seen, is that Christ came in to Jerusalem riding on the donkey, being presented as really the kingdom, came in a very humble way. The throngs of crowds were around him and it looked like a jubilant, triumphant day. Only Christ knew exactly what was going to happen that week and where this whole thing was going. Um, what a week it was. He taught in the temple every day. Um, he got confronted by the religious leaders. Constantly they were trying to trap him in their questions. And he was able to answer the questions he might answer with a question. Anyway, they were trying to stump him. And whenever it all resulted in defeat for them, they realized that they didn't have an answer for whatever he had come up with for them. And he wasn't the one who looked a fool in front of the people. It was them. And so that was some of the things that were going on in this very Passion Week. Now, we are here. At this point, where the leaders are plotting about arresting Jesus, arresting him, and then, of course, um, crucifying him, we are really right on schedule as far as God is concerned. Everything he has always planned, it's being done exactly the way that he wants at the time that he wants. And his own son is going to be crucified. It has been planned that way from before the foundation of creation. And so, God planned this, and yet at the same time there are wicked, evil men who are driven by their depravity, and they want to kill the very Son of God. We're going to be eyewitnesses of this 
time that's leading up to that grand event. This is being set it up, being set up as we look in chapter 22 of Luke today. This is going to be the greatest part of our journey. Luke has been building it up and now he finally has it where he wants it. This is pointing to what it's all about. This is what we've been waiting for. And this is the heart of what our beliefs system is about. So today, we get to the all-important matter of who was responsible for the death of Christ. Let's get into the text. We'll be starting at chapter 22, and it will be at verse 1, but we might even back up in chapter 21, uh, at verse 37 and 38. It says, now during the day, he was teaching at the temple, but at evening he would go out, spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Now, this is just a little shorty here, these first couple of verses. Jesus has come into the city. He has continued to teach every day. He has done what he has been doing for three years. And every night then he would go up to the Mount of Olives, spend the night there. It was to get away from the ones who were trying to pursue him, to arrest him. And so the reason that they didn't get him in the day was because it would cause a riot amongst the people. At least they think that. So they don't want to get caught in trapping Jesus and catching him. In the day, they want it to be seen, not seen, and to be done during nighttime, is the way that it's advancing. Anyway, at night, he would go up into the groves of trees, olive trees, obviously, up there, and it'd be a great place to be safe. And that's what it was, as he would come down the next day, and then be in full daylight in front of the people and the crowds as he would uh, teach. They needed to capture him, though, the religious leaders did. And they wanted to hold him. They would rather capture him and hold him until the time of the Passover would be concluded. And maybe a few days after that, when all the people would be gotten out of the city. And then as they dispersed, then they could carry on with their execution. That would be the ideal way that they would have in mind. Now, we're going to go to um, Matthew Chapter 26, verse 4 and 5, where it says, They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and killing. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So that's their plan. They are going to get him. But they do not want to do it where everybody sees them. So we advance to that chapter 22. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. So here we have the Passover. This is God's timing all the way through. Our question is, is who is responsible for killing the Messiah? Whenever they planned to kill Jesus, whatever time that was going to be, God planned it to be on Friday. Now this particular day would be like Wednesday. It would be like two days away from 
that time period. Now, if they were going to capture him and hold him for a few days, let's say five, eight, ten days maybe, make sure everybody gets out, the crowds are gone, the Passover lambs have been slain, and all the Passover is done. Well, God determined, no, it's going to be on Passover day. It's going to be done at that time. He determined that. Jesus is the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb who died for God to be a satisfactory atonement and to satisfy His justice. So, if He does that, then He can forgive the ones who are His and their sins are going to be paid for at the cross. So God's timing is perfect. It says in Matthew 26 too, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. So there is two days that we get there. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, it says, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, is going to be killed right on that Passover day. John 1.29, way back at the very start of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God to be sacrificed. So, it's going to be on Friday. Now, it's interesting that the day before this, or the night before, there's going to be this Passover celebrated by Jesus and the disciples. I find that interesting because he's going to have the Passover meal on the night before the Passover on Friday. But the situation is, is to the Galileans, Thursday was going to be the Passover day. Friday is the Passover for the Judeans. And so it makes way for both of those groups of people, depending on where they're from, of when they celebrate that. So Jesus is able to take that Passover and make it a teaching situation to show that He is the Lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of being the Passover Lamb. He is that. And so during that Passover, He institutes what we as the church know today as the Lord's Supper. And that is meaningful to us as we remember His death. This uh, is seen at the end of the Passover meal where Jesus says, Take, eat this bread. Take this cup, this cup of redemption. He is the bread. He is the unleavened bread. And that blood is uh, pictured by the cup that was drank, that third cup of redemption. So there it is. He's uh, going to be arrested on Friday, Friday morning, in the wee hours of it. Thursday night, he celebrates Passover, teaches it. And then, the next day also, will be Passover as he is that lamb. So this is God's timing. It's absolute perfect in every way. Isn't this exciting? It's, it's tremendous. 
And we see that it's God's plan in every way. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is the architect. He is the designer. He is the power behind this whole story, behind all of this. Uh, He's fulfilling the eternal plan and counsel of God has came up with this story of the ages. And it's coming about at this time. The leaders were responsible for their terrible sin that they did in killing the Messiah. But inadvertently, they're really carrying out God's plan. God had this designed in this way for the salvation of the world. John Calvin had uh, quite a little paragraph dealing on this issue. He wrote, And it is of great importance for us to hold that Christ was not unexpectedly dragged to death by the violence of his enemies, but was led to it by the providence of God. For our confidence in the propitiation is founded on the conviction that he was offended, offered to God as that sacrifice which God had appointed from the beginning. And therefore, he determined that his son should be sacrificed on the very day of the Passover, that the ancient figure might give place to the only sacrifice of eternal redemption. That ancient figure, the type of Christ, the sacrifices that had been done, the Passover sacrifice. So his death was planned before the foundation of the world. That's why he's in the scripture called the lamb that's slain from before the foundation of the world. This is a divine plan on God's part that Jesus would die before everything was created. In Revelation 13.8 says all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the lamb's book of life the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Acts 2, 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise him. This is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. His justice is being met. In Luke 22, 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed to the cross. But woe to that man who betrays him. First Peter 1.20 Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So it was not man's plan, it was God's plan. Even though evil men plotted to kill Jesus, and they hated him so much, and they really wanted to kill him. Yet they could not do it. They've been trying to kill him for three years, going all the way back to his hometown in Nazareth. They were ready to kill him. Anyway, this is God's plan from eternity. It is being done. God is sovereign. He is in total control. 
Now, when it looked like there were times whenever people that wanted to kill him, they could have. But they couldn't. It was not his time. The time, the hour has not yet come. In John 7.30 it says, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. In John 8.20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury. He taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. They couldn't lay their hands on him, even though they wanted to. So desperately. In Mark 14, 1 and 2, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Not during the feast, not during the festival. But they are going to arrest him during the festival. And that's God's will. The hour did finally come. God's schedule. It's right on time. Perfect time. John 12, 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. The hour had come. It was there. John 17, 1, after Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. That hour is the cross. The Father has this all under control. And it's going exactly the way that it was detailed, planned. Now, God is the one who's responsible for killing the Son. But there are other people that play a lot of roles. A lot of roles here that we see. A lot of people who are in on this killing of Christ. Of course, we know that. That's obvious. Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. For they were afraid of the people. So there's the deal. They really can't arrest him because they are afraid of the people. There could be riots. And with riots that could destroy this whole thing of their arrest. And it says, chief priest, scribes. We're talking the official religious elite. We're talking the elders of the people would be the ones that make up the Sanhedrin. And uh, they were all part of it as well. The Sadducees were there. And of course, Caiaphas is involved in this. The chief priest, who is a Sadducee. And we know that he had a lot to do with putting him to death. And uh, he was really a political animal. He didn't care so much about the religion as he did the politics in it. See, he was corrupt and he ran the temple... And you remember Jesus came into the temple and cleared the temple out. And, uh, of course, all the animals were running loose. and It just went crazy whenever he ran the money changers out of there and overturned the tables. And that made them very furious. So this is where we're at. He attacked their theological system, Jesus did. He also attacked their political system. And he attacked their economic system, 
they are very angry. This is why they want to kill him so bad. So they met in Caiaphas' uh, courtyard. And he tried to figure out a way, along with the rest of them, to kill Jesus. In John's Gospel, he gives us the first-hand account in John eleven forty-seven. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council. Matthew tells us it was in Caiaphas' courtyard. So that's a little more detail as we look at it. And they were saying, listen guys, what are we doing? We've got to kill him now. We can't wait any longer. We can't wait till after this festival. We've got to do it now. The crowds are getting bigger. He will just convert everybody. And what will that do to our religion? He'll destroy us. All men will believe in him. If we, you know, if we let him go on like this, what he's doing. There goes our religious system. We've got to do something about it. We've got to do it now. Everybody's starting to believe in them. And the Romans are seeing all of this and they just might come in and take away our peace and our nation because of this uproar that's going. So there goes our power. There goes our money. And so they've got to do something. Caiaphas brings it up and he says in John 11, of course, in that whole section, 47 through 53, finally he says, It is expedient for you that one man should die for the people. Now, he gives a prophecy. He's just saying that he's got to die. And out of all the... It's either this nation, or it's going to be him, or it's going to be him. Out of all those people, it's going to be one, and it's him. But he wasn't talking about the substitutionary death. He wasn't talking about the atonement of Christ for sinners dying for them. And so the high priest says, we got to do it. We have to do it now. They're afraid of the Romans. So Caiaphas just speeds up the plan here. The whole thing is just escalated. And we've got to kill him now. In Luke 19.47 it says, And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. Well, you know, they're afraid of the people. Maybe they're overestimating the crowd a little bit because they are fickle and many of those same people are going to be crying, Crucify him! Crucify him! In a couple of days. And so... What we have here is maybe they're anticipating something that is maybe not so much as far as the crowd and their fear of that crowd. So they thought, we've got to take him at night. No doubt about it. Uh, Who will betray him? Maybe we can get somebody who is in with that group or somebody that knows him or, or somebody that knows where he's staying at night, where he's been so safe. So, how are they going to get him? Well, they'll need some help. Where does he stay at night? So we move on to verse 3. Satan entered into Judas. We'll stop there. Whatever restraint Judas had up to this point now starts caving in. Because it goes to his mind and then action happens. In John 13, 2, at verse 27, get a little more on that. 
The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And after the morsel had been given to Judas, then Satan entered into him. So here is equaling with this verse 3. Satan enters in. He is totally possessed by Satan now. Judas is. Did Satan want to crucify Jesus? I've often asked that question to myself. Did he want to kill Jesus? Well, it seems obvious that yes, he would want to kill him. He, he hates him. But on the other hand, Satan also knows Scripture very well. And he knows that Jesus comes to die on the cross for forgiveness of sins for the sinners. So, did he really want to crucify Jesus? Well, let's think about it for a moment. It's very possible that he didn't want Jesus to die. There's one thing, yes, he would like to kill him, but if he is killed in this sense, in this way, it will satisfy God's justice. Well, you remember in Matthew 16, where Jesus says uh, that he has to die, and Peter says, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. Lord, you can't die. You're not going to die. And what does Jesus reply back? Get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan there in the sense that that is in the spirit of Satan. Because Satan doesn't want to go along with God's plan. As we have already reiterated, Satan wanted to stop the death of Christ. Is that a possibility? I think it could be. And I know that sounds a little bit foreign, but in, you know, Satan didn't want Christ to die, to be that sacrifice for sin. Satan wants Christ not to die in this way as a sacrifice for sin. Because that leaves everybody in his domain if they're not forgiven. And he has free reign over them. So it's like, okay, well then why would Satan enter into Judas to betray him? And that would be your next question then, though. Isn't it obvious that he wants to kill Jesus? I'm just putting this forth. It's definitely worth thinking about, isn't it? Well, why would Satan enter Judas? Why would he motivate Judas to betray Jesus to have Jesus crucified? when he knew that was God's plan. Well, is it possible that Satan overestimates the crowd also? They play a big part in this, and that's why we did verse 37 and verse 38 in chapter 21 to start this whole section in chapter 22, because the crowd plays a big part. Satan thought exactly what the leaders thought, I do believe. And so Jesus being arrested in a public setting, Jesus uh, being seen by the crowd, being arrested, what a riot it would do. And, if we could go ahead and have this now, Satanist thinking, then the people will see this 
And this will pre- prevent Jesus from being killed. Satan is escalating this arrest, possibly, by going into Judas, and Judas then carrying through with that plan to get Jesus arrested during this Passover week and and being crucified. Maybe being arrested is one thing, but being crucified, no, they don't want to do that. It doesn't seem, but we've already seen that they've got to do something, though. They've got to do something about it. Caiaphas has already put that out as an order. So that's why we now have the arrest that's coming up now. So Satan escalates this arrest, very possibly. And he wants to have it in public. He wants public trials. He wants open trials. The people could revolt against what the leaders would be doing. And Satan then can thwart the cross. If there's no cross, there's no sacrifice. The sins are not paid for. So, not only is he going to have the crowd working on his edge here, here, as far as his side is concerned, but uh, Satan and all of his demons can press Christ and tempt him. And in the Garden of Eden, we see that Jesus says, if possible, if this cup could be taken from me, and he sweats blood, uh, the capillary system comes to take presence there and his pores are sweating as it were great drops of blood so Satan plays a huge part in this and then we get in verse 3 he came to Judas Iscariot belonging to the number of the twelve and he went away and discussed with the chief priest and officers how he might betray him to them they were glad and agreed to give him money So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. This is Judas. This is a betrayal by a friend of Jesus. The best understanding of the New Testament accounts is that Judas walked into Caiaphas' house, uh, the courtyard, went into that meeting that they were having and he said, how much is it worth to you for me to bring Jesus to you or to show you where he's at? If I tell you where Jesus is at in the middle of the night, how much is it worth to you? That's essentially really what happened as Judas came to them. This is God's time. This is the time that it was to be done. Everything has been set into motion. It's doing it. Why would Judas do that? Well, the devil came into him. He had been playing it in his mind anyway. He was an unbeliever. He's unregenerate. And he knows that he's not getting this kingdom that he thought was coming very soon. It's a lot different than what he thought. And so it turns out that he's a fake. He's unregenerate. He's not a believer. We're not going to spend any more time on Judas. Other than that, there's so many passages in the Old Testament that speak of him in the Psalms and in Zechariah. We see it in 
the New Testament passages, we'll see it later on in this chapter. So we'll be talking about him more in the weeks to come. But we do notice that he is one of the twelve. He belonged to the number of the twelve. It's amazing. Shows that people who look like they are believers. He looked like as if anybody could, it was him. He appeared that way. There are many people who appear to be true believers who are really not. And then they walk away from Christ. Here it is, Judas betrayed him. And then we see another word here that sticks out in verse 5. They agreed to give him money. It was really the price of a slave. 30 shekels. And then we see that it's all set in motion now. And he began seeking that opportunity. And of course, at the Passover, that last supper, he walks out as Jesus says, go and do what you're going to do. He left and then he did that. He turned them over. He showed them where he would be. Every night he knew that. It's set in motion now. We're set up for the rest of the story. Who is responsible? Well, I'll tell you what, this is God's plan. Man's plan is in this, but overall, it's God. He planned it. Aren't you glad that He planned it? Otherwise, our sins would not be forgiven. We would stand as sinners and we would have death and judgment awaiting for us to pay for our sins eternally. Something so sinister happened here, but God uses something so bad for the good. He works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He sure did it here. Who else could have done this? Only God. He's the primary cause. But there are secondary causes. People and their sin carry it through with what He had planned to do. It's beyond our imagination how that works. That's the mind of God. High and holy as it is, he uses evil to accomplish good. And we need to hear that because to us as believers, we can have perfect confidence and faith in Him that He's always doing things for good, for our good. It's for us. His perfect plan and so we can answer the question, who was responsible? Ultimately, it really is Jesus Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, the triune God who were involved in the divine counsels before the foundation of the world planned this. And it's being carried out perfectly. Thank you for joining us today. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, great God, Almighty. Sovereign God, who is in all control of whatever goes on in our world and our own lives. You are working it for your own good. Your plan is perfect in every way. We may not see all of that, but we believe it. We trust you. Help us to believe even more, great God, as we look at this story that leads up to the cross and our salvation. 
and then the ultimate triumphant resurrection. And we look to that for next week. We look for the resurrection day as we celebrate that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining this morning. And we really want to see you in person, face to face. But until then, we will continue on with these videos. Thank you very much.